I have several dear friends and loved ones that are nurses, and I respect all of the work that they do for all of us. I've been lucky enough to have amazing, amazing, empathetic, and skilled nurses during my life, both men and women, and I'm always in awe of what they do. On a recent trip to Rosecrans National Cemetery, among the graves of our fallen warriors, I saw some graves of nurses, and I could only imagine what these amazing women did to save the lives of millions of soldiers over the years of war. And I was curious. So for Women's History Month, we are going to honor these women. What lies beneath? The women of war. This is Stones, Bones, and Shadows. and Tapophiles, I'm your host, Lachelle, and we are visiting an amazing cemetery today. It is Fort Rosecrans Memorial Cemetery in San Diego, California, and today my co-host is my very cool and patriotic son, Rhett. Hello, everybody. I went to this cemetery, and I have five sisters, so I am very prepared to talk today. Very excited. <laughs> That's true. You know women. Yes. You've got grandmas, five sisters, yes, mom. Yes, I have family members who are female. And so, Disqualifies you, know, you to... I feel very confident in my abilities today. Anyways, uh, <laughs> thank you for having me. Fort Rosecrans National Cemetery is a federal military cemetery, and it's located in San Diego County, about 10 miles west of San Diego. And it's on the grounds of the former Army Coastal Artillery Station, Fort Rosecrans. And it is administered by the United States Department of Veteran Affairs. The cemetery is spread out over 77 and a half acres. So it's very big. Yeah, it was ginormous. And it overlooks the San Diego Bay and the city from one side. And then over on the other side of the cemetery, you just see Pacific Ocean as far as you can see. So really most everywhere in the cemetery, you just have a gorgeous yes. view. You're just up high too. So you just like see everything. It is. Like... It's kind of up on a bluff. Yeah. So you're looking down and out over across the ocean. It has lots of palm trees. Oh, yeah, it was really, honestly, it's kind it's, of swaying in the ocean breezes. Yeah, it was one of the more pretty cemeteries I've been to, I think. I say this a lot, but it had its own feel. Mm -hmm. Every cemetery just kind of has its own, I don't know if personality is the right word, but just yeah. kind of feel to it. It's a paradise. It's a beautiful, oh, yeah. beautiful burial place. Yes. Fort Rosecrans, it's named after a man named William Stark Rosecrans, a Union general in the American Civil War. He was an American inventor, coal oil company executive, diplomat, politician, and U.S. Army officer. 
Now, he gained fame for his role as a Union general during the American Civil War, and he was the victor at prominent Western theater battles, but his military career effectively ended following a disastrous defeat at the Battle of Chickamauga in 1863. After the war, he served in diplomatic and appointed political positions, and in 1880 was elected to Congress representing California. Mm. Okay, Rhett, tell Mm. us a little bit about those that are buried there. Many Fort Rosecrans interments date to the early years of California territory, including the remains of the casualties of the Battle of San Francisco. Shortly after the United States declared war on Mexico in May 1846, a brigadier, Stephen Watts Kearney, was tasked with conquering Mexico's northern provinces, New Mexico and California, expecting a show of force from the Mexican Californios I thought you love that. California. Californios. That's what it said. Californios. <laughs> hey, you know what? I believe it. Uh, <laughs> Kearney set out west from New Mexico upon reaching California. Kit Carson. Kit Carson. Oh, I love him. Uh, intercepted him and his men who informed him the territory had been taken by American settlers in the Bear Flag Revolt. Kearney sent... 200 of his men back to New Mexico with the news and continued forward with one-third of his force. Fortunately, the success of the revolt had been exaggerated and before reaching their destination, Kearney and his men encountered a group of Californios intent (laughs) on keeping more U.S. troops out of their homeland. In the subsequent Battle of San Pascal, 19 of Kearney's men and an untold number of Californios lost their lives. Initially, the dead were buried where they fell, but by 1874, the remains had been removed to the San Diego Military Reservation. Eight years later, the bodies were again reinterred in what is now Fort Rosecrans National Cemetery in 1922. The San Diego chapter of the Native Sons and Daughters of the Golden West had a large boulder brought from the battlefield and placed at the gravesite with a plaque affixed that lists the names of the dead. Another notable monument in Fort Rosecrans commemorates the deaths of 62 sailors in a boiler explosion oh. aboard the USS Bennington. Wow. Do you remember going to this one, the big obelisk? We took quite a few oh, pictures yeah. there, you and I, I did. I do remember that. The Bennington which had just returned from maneuvers in the Pacific, was anchored out in the San Diego Harbor. And on July 22, 1905, the crew was ordered to depart in search for the USS Wyoming, which had lost a propeller at sea. Approximately at 10.30 a.m., an explosion in the boiler room ripped through the ship, killing and wounding the majority of the crew. Two days later, the remains of soldiers and sailors were brought to the post cemetery and interred in an area known as Bennington Plot. The USS Bennington Monument is a tall granite obelisk dedicated to the men who lost their lives on that ship in San Diego Harbor on July 21, 1905. The monument was dedicated on January 7, 1908. Big obelisk, and it has a little bit talking about the history on plaques on the sides of the obelisk. And then down below, it has headstones for the men. That's pretty touching. 
to be there as well. We think a lot of times in war it's just like people get hurt just from fighting, but just... They're working with a lot of dangerous equipment. Yeah, like it's it's dangerous all around. It's not just the people you're fighting against. Or yeah, this, this was just an accident. Mm -hmm. So really, it's really tragic. Yeah. Fort Rosecrans became a national cemetery on October 5th, 1934. The decision to make the post cemetery part of the national system came in part due to changes in legislation that greatly increased the number of persons eligible for burial in a national cemetery. Grave space in San Francisco National Cemetery then grew increasingly limited. In addition, Southern California was experiencing a phenomenal population growth during this period. There was a definitive need for more burial sites. There's also a granite and bronze USS Wasp CV-7 memorial that commemorates the loss of fellow shipmates during Battle of Guadalcanal on September 15, 1942. And there was also a Mormon battalion marker and monument for those that had come across in the Mormon battalion mm -hmm. yeah. and for their efforts and, and what they had done to help settle that area of the country as well. And so that was really interesting. Yeah. So it was you and me and Dallin and your dad mm -hmm. that were there um, this past summer. So it was, it was pretty warm. Yeah. <laughs> and pretty hot and muggy. But we were there during kind of in the middle of the day. Yeah. I don't know what we were thinking going <laughs> in the hot part of the adventure. day. Adventure, that's right. Cemetery adventure. <laughs> As we all walked through the cemetery, it was a little overwhelming, I think, to all of us because oh, yeah. if you've ever been to a military cemetery, you can picture this or you've probably seen pictures of Normandy or, you right. know, those where you just have marker after marker and they are all pretty much the same and just that small white marker. Yeah. And it was just rows and rows, just hundreds and hundreds. And they're all in perfect line, mm -hmm. wh whichever way you look. If you look to the side or diagonal, yeah. they're in line or straight. Yeah, it's insane. Just like looking at all of them, it just really just puts you in perspective and like, holy cow, like all these people, yeah. you know, sacrifice themselves for our country and for, you know, their families and loved ones. So mm -hmm. it's just like every time you go to these kind of cemeteries, it just takes your breath away a little bit. Right. And it kind of makes me think of them standing at attention mm. in rows, you know, in yeah. their formation, in death, as they did in life. Yeah. And that you know that each one of those white dots, as you look further and further out, they're just little tiny white dots out there, but that each one was a life, a man or a woman, an individual that helped protect our nation and many other people and places around the world. So it was just really moving and oh, yeah. emotional. It just seems like we always end up shedding tears. I probably shed tears at almost every cemetery <laughs> I go to. But knowing that they gave all for others and for the country oh, yeah. just really meant a lot. And as I was walking along, I really liked to try to read as many stones as I can and 
see what their name was, when they were born, how old they are, mm -hmm. where they were from, what regiment or unit yeah. of the service. I saw some women's names. And a lot of times, I mean, most of the times you see men's names. Mm -hmm. And these, they predated women that would be in the armed forces, like now can be in the Navy, yeah, be a woman or sure. army or whatever. But then when I looked closer, I saw that it said army nurse or nurse World War One. And I've seen so many soldiers' graves over the years, and it just hits me the same every time. All of us, I think our whole family it does, but... Yeah. And sometimes their death date is much later than the war they fought in. And in Rosecrans, there was also graves of some of their wives that got to be buried next oh, to yeah. them Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah, that was really cool. So it wasn't, like, completely that every person there had fought in the war, but I still think of it as even if there's wives or a child that's buried there with them, like, they all sacrificed. Oh, yeah, it's tough. For the country and for others. Oh, yeah, for sure. And that makes me happy when you see that their death date is much later and you felt glad that they lived and they had a life after their service. But then many, many times their dates of death match the time of the conflict that they were in. And you realize that they died in service to the country. And every time, like, my heart just kind of sinks. Yeah. And you look at the date and you're like, you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. you look at it and you just go, oh, they died in the Vietnam War. You know? Yeah. It's, they died there. Yeah, definitely. I agree. It stops you. And that's just kind of crazy to think about. And most of them are young. They're like your age or mm -hmm. maybe 30, you know, but not a whole lot older. I mean, it's a lot yeah. of young men and women paid the ultimate price. They literally gave all. So finding these few nurses' graves was kind of something different. And just got me thinking about nurses in the wars. We think a lot about the men and women that fight in the wars, but this kind of led me on to research and think about the women that were behind the scenes and helping patch up the people who were wounded and trying to save these lives. And I just wanted to know their stories, thus the podcast, you know me. <laughs> Here we are, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> and so I looked for the women that I found there in Rosecrans Cemetery, and I couldn't find any stories about them. So that was a bummer. Yeah. So I was really hoping I was going to be... I did find one that I'll share later because she's in more recent history. But so then I just started looking into stories of the experiences that nurses had overall mm. in the different conflicts. Yeah, And it was just kind of a lot. I mean, I thought of all the movies and books that tell their stories in historical fiction or watching Pearl Harbor or something. And it's <laughs> yeah. all like so romantic yes. and, you know, all of that. And you get kind of a glimpse, I guess, of what it could be like when mm -hmm. it gets bombed and they're all trying to work on the wounded and everything. But when you read their journals and diaries and letters home, you get an even greater appreciation for the work that they did for the men fighting the wars. Yeah. And just the harsh conditions that they had to work in, it just really gave me great respect for those strong and brave women. For sure. And so I decided since it was Women's History Month, I wanted to tell this story. And even though this story, like it sounds like one story, it's literally thousands and thousands and thousands of women's stories. Right. 
we are going to just try to tell a few and shed some light into the work that they did. Today, nurses in the United States are required to have a nursing degree, but that wasn't always the case. Women have a long history of serving as nurses to soldiers in the military. In the earliest days of American history, nurses were untrained. Many of them were women who couldn't eke out a living with their men off to war. Who couldn't eke out a living with their men off to war. So they followed the troops and make themselves useful where they could to earn safety, food, and lodging. Later, the important role the nurses played during wartime was recognized and training programs were established. Today, nurses serve in all branches of the military. During the Revolutionary War in America that was fought from 1775 to 1783, women were like these camp followers <laughs> and they were trying to find work. Some of them just needed to be taken care of. They couldn't make it without their husband there at home. So they just kind of went along with them and helped cook and do laundry and do all of the things that the men needed as well and be caretakers. And that was considered kind of an innate female talent and ability, and it kind of is. <laughs> Us men, we're, we're kind of helpless sometimes. So. <laughs> Need a little extra help from the ladies. Tell us who to punch, but uh, <laughs> we can't put the whites and the colors you know, separate or whatever. So. We're kind of helpless, so we need a little extra help for sure. But it's also helpful because if a woman is doing the nursing, then that meant that there was one more man available to fight. Mm -hmm. I read that it was believed that men were too impatient and insensitive to be the nurses. So they needed the <laughs> women to do that. Just give them a gun and let them go shoot the girl and let the women do the nursing, so that was kind of funny. On July 27, 1775, a resolution was signed allotting payment of $2 per month to women who worked as Per nurses. month? I mean, I know Holy things cow. were a little different. I mean, that's over 200 years yeah. ago, but $2 a month just seems a little sparse. Women who supervised the nurses and acted as go-betweens to the surgeons received $4. Ooh. The word, of... Sorry. <laughs> oh, the word of female nurses was apparently recognized since the pay for all nurses was raised to $4 in 1776. <laughs> Woo! Yeah! The signing of this resolution was significant because it created the first organized system for the assignment and payment of nurses for the American military. So, had to start somewhere. We all know the story of Florence Nightingale and how she kind of led the movement during the Crimean War and how she had led the movement to replace traditional women nurses who were just the untrained yeah. wives, right? Soldiers' wives. And she wanted to replace them with educated, middle-class, single women. And so in place of the wives, thousands of respectable, air quotes, women volunteered as hospital nurses and as many as 2,000 were paid for their services. But all nurses had to confront the hostility of physicians and the belief that no decent woman would nurse a man outside her immediate family. So nursing was not looked on as respectable, really, even though you, it just seems unbelievable. You but can't heal that guy. He's not your father or your exactly. husband. Like, what? You're going to have to touch them and remove their clothing? What? <laughs> 
scandalous. <sighs> yeah. And because women nurses then were just civilians, they're outside yeah. of the military. And so that made kind of a weird dynamic. Yeah, for sure. I liked this story about just a normal lady trying to do her best during the revolutionary era. Her name was Abigail Hartman Rice, and she lived with her family about 30 miles outside of Philadelphia in Chester County, Pennsylvania. She was an immigrant who had crossed the Atlantic a quarter century before the war for independence began. She was a Continental Army nurse who served on the front lines fighting diseases for multiple years. And she delivered 21 children in her Whoa. lifetime, 17 of which lived to adulthood. Wow. I mean, that is miraculous in that itself. Is, yeah, that's an accomplishment for sure. And I just, I liked how her life demonstrated how the support of women was really important to the outcome of the American Revolution. Mm-hmm. And even though there was limitations placed on women by the 18th century society, women found their ways to help. And so they weren't just, uh, they weren't just observers of the revolution, but participants. I think that's a cool story in itself. They could have just been, you know, oh, okay, well, we won't help you since you don't even like, want us to do certain things. <laughs> True. You know, like let you just fight it, but they chose to help anyways. Abigail Hartman married her husband, Zachariah Rice, a young man in his early 20s in 1757, when Abigail was just 16. Two years later, at the age 18, Abigail delivered their first child. And according to the Rice family Bible, you know, in the old days, they used to write all the important Uh. happenings in their family Bible. Between 1760 and 1774, she delivered a baby each of those 14 years, except for 1766. Wow. Her family lived on a farm along the Pickering Creek, where Zachariah built a clover mill in the 1760s. As their family grew, so also did colonial resentment against the crown. And at times, the revolution even called Zachariah to fight. His name does appear on the lists of Chester County militia soldiers in 1777 and 1780. But unlike many of the soldiers in the regular army, Zachariah Rice had property, a living, and 15 children. Fifteen? Right, (laughs) yes. Fifteen kids and counting for Zachariah. (laughs) Despite his political leanings, he couldn't leave behind the clover mill and his children for years at a time. And so these strains placed on him, you know, prevented him from enlisting in the Continental Army. Fifteen kids will do that. (laughs) Abigail's family would have to find other ways to fight for independence. In 1777, the war came to Chester County, just right on their doorstep, and the Continental Army and the Crown Forces fought the Philadelphia campaign all over the countryside. They clashed for the first time along the Brandywine Creek on September 11th. The defeated Continentals marched into Chester County a few days later. The armies maneuvered into position, but a heavy rain that fell on September 16th prevented any major engagement. Following the near clash known as Battle of the Clouds, General Washington maneuvered his waterlogged army through Pikeland towards Yellow Springs. 
according to the family Bible again. You gotta love this family Bible. General George Washington rode at the head of the column and he stopped at their home. Wow. At the Rice's house. And Abigail and her children provided the general and his staff with something to drink. And that night, Brigadier General Mad Anthony Wayne's soldiers encamped on the Rice's property as the rain continued to fall. Ten days after the Battle of the Clouds, Philadelphia fell to the Crown forces. On October 4th, Washington's attempts to take back the American capital failed at Germantown. The armies continued to engage with some strength until the winter set in. On December 19th, Washington led his roughly 12,000-man army into their third winter encampment at Valley Forge. Mm. A host of problems awaited the Continentals in the southeastern Pennsylvania hills. One of the worst supply crises of the war meant soldiers were hungry and malnourished. And after a series of battlefield defeats, there was a dire need for more organized training and discipline. But for the time being, the deadliest enemy that army had to contend with was not the British, but disease. Before the army marched out of the encampment in June, between 1,800 and 2,000 men would die of illness more men than were killed at any single battle of the war. That's crazy. So in the struggle to keep the army alive, Abigail, her little self, and her family played a significant role. On January 3rd, 1778, with disease rates in his army rising, Washington authorized the construction of a new military hospital at Yellow Springs, about 10 miles from Valley Forge. Yellow Springs Hospital was the Continental Army's first permanent military medical facility. Zachariah Rice helped construct the building known as Washington Hall. And by the time the hospital was completed, the structure measured 106 feet by 36 feet. 1,300 soldier patients were treated at Yellow Springs throughout the six-month encampment. So the hospital, it was only about a mile from the Rice's little farm, And it's unclear when Abigail first started visiting the hospital there at Yellow Springs. And maybe it was just to see her husband as he worked on the building. Right. At first, Abigail came to Yellow Springs not to treat the men, but just to lift their spirits. To go visit or, you know, do some small little tasks for them. A descendant of hers wrote that Abigail, quote, came on her errands of mercy carrying foods and delicacies to the sick and wounded soldiers, unquote, with over a dozen children to provide for, and more on the way, we can imagine, that Abigail hoped to remain out of the war. But the trips to Yellow Springs became more and more frequent, and soon she was tending to the soldiers. You can imagine that that would be hard to see all the suffering and need. and not do anything about it. Hmm. Conditions at the hospital would be hard for us to completely imagine today. Nothing like our hospitals or clinics you would go to. They had very primitive knowledge of proper medical procedures. They didn't have a concept of germ theory, right? Sterilization, (laughs) right? So the conditions were probably kind of appalling. And the illnesses themselves were really unpleasant. They had typhus, typhoid fever, dysentery, and pneumonia. All of those were really common. 
and doctors needed the help of nurses frequently to perform amputations, mm. especially during those winter months where there was frostbite. Oh my gosh, I can't even imagine. Oh, I know. Throughout the war, Yellow Springs struggled to obtain all the necessary medical supplies. Simple items like just blankets, clothing, and soap were hard to obtain. In May of 1780, Dr. Bodo Otto, the hospital's director, wrote to the Continental Congress that, quote, necessary stores for the sick are entirely exhausted. He continued, there is no money in the hands of the commissary to purchase fresh provisions. So the sick have been obliged these several past days to eat salt provisions. Eat salt provisions? Mm-hmm. There is but six days supply of bread on hand, and the gentlemen who have furnished us that article as well as meat for the two years past now refuse to supply us any longer. Also in that same letter, he describes how nurses refuse serving any longer as they have received no pay. The Yellow Springs nurses, typically marginalized by society and often considered the physical property of their husbands, raised their voices to demand that they get the money that they had been promised. Yeah. Imagine. <laughs> Moreover, Washington and Congress, they heeded their protests and resolved the issue. By the end of the war, some nurses earned greater pay than enlisted men. Wow. Sadly, our Abigail Hartman Rice paid the ultimate price for her service at Yellow Springs. During her time at the hospital, she contracted typhoid fever from one of the soldiers. She suffered complications from the illness and was never able to fully recover. In 1789, she died at home, still suffering from the disease she contracted years prior. Oh my goodness. But those in her circle did understand the incredible legacy she left behind. When she was laid to rest in the cemetery near St. Peter's Church in Pikeland, her first gravestone read, Some have children, some have none. Here lies the mother of 21. (laughs) Two years before he lost his wife, Zachariah Rice was thrown into disputes over his property in Pikeland. Thanks to faulty mortgages and multiple owners, Rice stood to lose his mill and farm. Holy cow. Just one year after he buried Abigail, Zachariah lost his home and the clover mill farm to foreclosure. He moved most of his family further west, where he lived until he died in 1811. There are 17 surviving children spread out throughout the growing country. Some settled in Virginia, the Ohio Territory, although many stayed around that area. Their youngest son, Benjamin, lived through the outbreak of the American Civil War in the spring of 1861. Since she died in 1789, the descendants of Abigail Rice have continued to honor her memory. She has her own chapter of the Daughters of the American Revolution, and a new headstone has been laid in St. Peter's Cemetery in Pikeland, honoring her service as a nurse at Yellow Springs. And there is a memorial plaque dedicated in her memory in the bell tower of the Washington Memorial Chapel at Valley Forge National Historical Park. So I liked our Abigail. Just yeah, a good, she's amazing. Good lady.
now on to the Civil War. Gone with the wind. <laughs> oh yeah, it was gone with the wind, all right. So when the Civil War broke out, there was no organized training system in place for nurses in America, which means there was still no such thing as nursing degrees. However, the groundwork had been laid in Europe throughout the work of Florence Nightingale. That doesn't mean, though, that women did not play a significant role during the Civil War. They served as nurses in Union and Confederate hospitals. Many also worked closer to the battlefield on June 10, 1861. Dorothea Lind was named Superintendent of Women Nurses, which created an organized unit of nurses for the Union. So finally, we're starting to yeah. get more organized. Yeah, more official than just anyone who wants to help can help. <laughs> One of my favorite nurses from the Civil War is Clara Barton. And she was actually the founder of the American Red Cross. Oh, wow. And is probably the most famous Civil War nurse. Right. And we actually told a little story about her in our episode about William Henry Gaston and when he was in the war and there at Sharpsburg, Antietam, and she was holding a man trying to help him get a drink and she had her arm kind of holding him up. Right. And she felt the sleeve of her shirt tug and the man just flopped over dead. He had been shot in the back and side underneath between her arm and Whoa. her body. Do you remember that? Right there. She almost died. Just really a compassionate, caring woman and was a pioneer in the field of nursing. She also was a supporter of the women's suffrage movement and dedicated her life to helping people. Clarissa Clara Harlow Barton was born December 25th, 1821 in North Oxford, Massachusetts to Captain Stephen and Sarah Stone Barton. Her father was a prosperous businessman and a community leader who served in the Indian Wars and regaled Clara with war stories. Which makes me wonder if that kind of made a difference in who she later becomes as she listened to these war stories of her father's. I don't know. I'm sure it definitely had some impact on that, for sure. But she was educated mainly at home by her older siblings. She was the youngest of five children, and Clara was extremely shy. When her brother David became seriously ill following a barn-raising accident, 11-year-old Clara nursed him for two years. Wow, can you imagine as an 11-year-old, like, just being your brother's main and nurse and caretaker? Yeah, that's for really two crazy. years. The family then enlisted the help of a doctor who used hydrotherapy to cure David within a few weeks. Following David's recovery, Captain Barton sent Clara to a private boarding school, and though she was to keep up academically, her shyness affected her health and she returned home. Finally, her mother had her examined by a noted phrenologist who recommended she become a teacher to overcome her shyness. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that might be a little dangerous. I don't know that much about phrenology, but I don't understand why becoming a teacher would be the answer to her shyness. But maybe, maybe it helped. Yeah, it was definitely all or nothing. Sink or swim. <laughs> uh, Clara took the teacher's exam, a brief oral exam given by a minister, a lawyer, and a judge. Sounds like some kind of a joke. Oh, that would, yeah, that's definitely a start of a joke somewhere. And she began teaching in May 1838 in North Oxford. As a teacher, she enthralled her students and refused to discipline them physically. 
Though corporal punishment was a common practice in the 19th century schools. Six years later, she opened her own school. Like, I just don't like you guys, so I'm going to do my own thing. In 1850, to further her own education, Clara enrolled at the Clinton Liberal Institute. After a year's study, she moved with a friend to Bordentown, New Jersey. At the time, New Jersey had no free public schools, but with the support from the local community, Clara opened a free public school. Although enrollment was initially low, by the end of the year, she had about 200 pupils. Her project was such a success that the community built a new school and, much to Clara's surprise, hired a man to run it and double her salary. Now that's the thanks you get. Yeah, gum it. You build up this whole thing and they're like, good job. We really love what you're doing and you're doing a great job, so we're just going to replace you with another person who doesn't know what they're doing. Doesn't have anything pay, to do with this. And pay them extra. Okay. Oh, that's a kick in the face. <laughs> yes. <laughs> So obviously, Clara resigned. <laughs> yeah, good for you, Clara. <laughs> she got out of there. And then she moved to Washington, D.C., where she became the first female clerk in the U.S. Patent Office hmm. after President James Buchanan took office in 1857. Her position was eliminated. Of course. And she was dismissed. Man, they just want to keep her down. She went home, but later returned to the Patent Office and was in Washington, D.C. when the American Civil War began. On April 19, 1861, a mob of Southern sympathizers attacked soldiers from the 6th Massachusetts Regiment in Baltimore. The Baltimore riot killed and wounded several soldiers and civilians. A makeshift hospital had been set up for the soldiers at the new U.S. Capitol building in Washington, D.C. As soon as she heard about the riots, Clara left the patent office to tend to the wounded, some of whom she knew personally. She starts collecting food, medicine, clothing, and other supplies for the troops, many of whom had arrived with only the clothes that they were wearing. Clara wrote friends from all over urging them to help, and soon was building a volunteer supply network that would last the entirety of the war. She dedicated herself to help with the war by any means she could, initially collecting and dispersing supplies and eventually nursing the wounded. She was one of the first to tend to the wounded, from the first battle of Bull Run, which we all know was pretty, yeah, it was this is a pretty rough battle. In July 1861 and in October, the soldiers returning from the Battle of Balls Bluff, who included soldiers she knew from Massachusetts. During the Peninsula Campaign of 1862, she went down to the docks to meet the transports returning from the field, tending the wounded and helping to bring them to the hospitals. In late 1861, she went home to North Oxford to tend to her dying father, returning to Washington in March 1862. With renewed conviction to help her country win the war, the neglected wounds of the men, which had weighed her mind since Bull Run, led to her campaign for the ability to travel to the field hospitals, which were restricted to male-only staff. But she finally got official permission in 1862 to transport supplies to battlefields and she arrived in the Union camps. Four days after the Battle of Cedar Mountain, Virginia, she stayed two days and nights to tend to the wounded. On September 1st, she arrived at Fairfax Station and tended the wounded from the Second Battle of Bull Run. On September 14th, she was on hand in Maryland to tend the wounded from the Battle of Harper's Ferry in South Mountain. So she was just going to all the battlefields and just tending to everyone. <laughs> she Yeah, she was helping she was out everywhere. everywhere. And you could see how this could really change whether a man could 
survive their wounds or not. Yeah. If they could get tended right away close to the battlefield when it happened and not wait till the whole battle was over and they could be removed right. to a hospital further away. And so she's like, no, we got to be closer. We got to be right there so that we can help. And she was really brave. I Yeah, I mean, she could have gotten shot. And, I mean, you know, you told that yeah, story where she did right. almost get shot. But <laughs> exactly. That just shows how amazing she was. She next travels with the army to Antietam Creek outside Sharpsburg. And she arrives there on the field with four wagons before the Battle of Antietam began. And she provided surgeons with supplies and stayed with the army as it pursued the Confederates into Virginia. And that's where she narrowly escapes death. During the Battle of Fredericksburg in December 1862, she assisted in a hospital at Chatham known as the Lacey House, tending wounds from both sides of the war. That would be crazy. Just wanted to help those that were suffering. Yeah. To assist a physician, she even traveled into Fredericksburg itself to tend the wounded and was able to set up a soup kitchen, returning to Chatham the next day to continue helping with the wounded. Because the physicians were too busy to keep records, Clara wrote the names of the men who died at Chatham and where they were buried in her diary. Wow. So that's how they knew where they were because she took the time. They don't have time, you know, for a lot of these things, although that seems really important. At the Battle of Fredericksburg, Virginia, in December 1862, she saw a fragment from an exploding shell sever a soldier's artery and went to work applying a tourniquet that oh saved his life. And when a shell struck the door of the room she was in, she continued what she was doing as though nothing had happened. Nerves of steel. <laughs> exactly. That is crazy. Wow. The rest of us would be under the bed. If I saw that, I'd be like, I'm sorry, I quit. Uh, <laughs> like that's just Scary. insane that she just right away just didn't even like acknowledge that. Yeah. <laughs> She must have had in her mind, like, yep, I just might get killed. I mean, death was all around her, and she yeah. just had a love for her fellow man and was willing to give her life to help others. Yeah. says a lot about her. Oh, for sure. In April of 1863, Clara traveled south to Hilton Head, South Carolina, in anticipation of the bombardment of Charleston, where she joined her brother, Captain David Barton, an Army quartermaster. She helped establish field hospitals and distribute supplies during the siege of nearby Fort Wagner in August. By June of the next year, Clara was appointed to be in charge of diet and nursing at the X-Corps Hospital, dubbed a flying hospital because of its frequent moves to be close enough to the battle mm. to help with the wounded, but not so close as to be overrun by the battle. On March 11, 1865, Clara was appointed by President Abraham Lincoln <laughs> to search for missing prisoners of war. Helping soldiers separated from the units reunite with those units or their families and helping families learn the fate of missing soldiers. You can see why this was really important. Yeah. They might be alive and just a prisoner of war. Mm -hmm. So she sets up friends of the missing men of the United States Army, and she used her own funds and with the assistance of several volunteers, which included her sister, Sally, 
they would receive an inquiry about a soldier and his name would be added to the list, which were organized by state and published in local newspapers, displayed in post office, post offices, and reviewed by various organizations. And the hope was that veterans seeing the list might recognize a name or two and provide Clara with information, which her organization would then provide to whoever had inquired about that soldier. Well, soon, the search for missing soldiers soon turned to identifying graves. So in June of 1865, she was contacted by Dorrance Atwater, a Union prisoner of war at Andersonville, Georgia, which we know was an awful place. He had been assigned to the Confederate Surgeon General to record the deaths at the prison. Other Union soldiers had been assigned to burying the dead. He secretly kept his own copy of this list and after returning north, asked Clara for help. She was able to use her connections to have the case presented to Secretary of War Edwin M. Stanton, who agreed that the nearly 13,000 graves should be properly marked. In July, Clara and Atwater traveled with the U.S. Army Quartermaster and 40 workmen to Andersonville. Clara had the honor of raising the flag over Andersonville National Cemetery on August 17, 1865, during the dedication ceremony. In February 1866, she testified before Congress about the Andersonville prison grounds, which still stood a stockade with no running water or shelter. She also testified about the freed slaves, many of whom had not been told of their freedom. In early March, Congress appropriated $15,000 to reimburse her for expenses related to the Friends of the Missing Men of the United States Army, which she would continue to operate until 1869, identifying a total of about 22,000 missing men. What a great service. And $15,000 of your own money back in those days? Oh my gosh, that's a lot of money. I don't even know how much money that was. Good thing somehow she was able to come up with the money. That... That's a lot of money for, like, <laughs> nowadays just to give to, like, an organization. Like, you don't, you rarely hear, hear of, like, anyone other than, like, a celebrity, you know, giving more than, like, 15000 <laughs> I think she just felt like this was something important to her and she felt like a calling for it. And even at the beginning where she was writing in her diary where men were buried and it was important to her and I would feel that way as well mm -hmm. and as you go throughout the areas of where the civil war was there's a lot of markers and a lot of battlefields and oh yeah um, cemeteries and sometimes they know their name and sometimes not it'll just say unknown Union soldier or right. unknown Confederate soldier. And it's heartbreaking because they didn't even know who he was, but at least there's a marker for that man. Yeah. So I liked that part of it too. Not only was she a nurse, but she cared about those that had died and wanted to help in that way too. So yeah. I thought that, that was really amazing. So it doesn't end there. In 1866, Clara began a lecture tour throughout the Northeast and Midwest describing the Civil War experiences. She often shared the platform with other prominent lecturers of the day. 
In November 1867, she met women suffrage leaders Elizabeth Caddy Stanton and Susan B. Anthony. Wow. Which I, re I recognize that second one. Mm -hmm. We're shouting you out too, Elizabeth Stanton. <laughs> Forming strong friendships with both of them and aligning herself firmly with the suffrage movement. Exhausted from her two-year lecture tour, Clara traveled to Europe in September 1869 on the advice of her doctor. While visiting Switzerland, she met Dr. Louis Apaya, a member of the Committee of Five, which would later become the International Committee of the Red Cross, an organization that had come out of the first Geneva Convention, August 1864. In September 1870, with sponsorship from the International Red Cross and the Grand Duchess Louisa Baden, daughter of Kaiser Wilhelm I, Clara organized a relief effort in Strasbourg, France, during the Franco-Prussian War, which had begun July 18, 1871. She organized a similar relief effort in Paris, though the work had begun to wear on her. Uh, understandably. <laughs> this poor woman. In 1872, nervous exhaustion caused Clara to temporarily lose her eyesight and she went to England to recuperate. I mean, that's stress. That is exhaustion when you she... literally go blind. Yeah. yeah. Poor thing. Yeah, that's a lot. At least her. it was temporarily, but wow. Yeah. The following October, she returned to the United States, though she did not make a full recovery until 1876. So she didn't even, she just went yeah. anyways, even though she wasn't even fully recovered. After going to the sanitarium in Dansville, New York, where she then made her home. Which just kind of broke my heart. Like she literally had to go impatient to recover from everything that she had seen and that she had witnessed oh, yeah. and done and all the stress and, I mean, people's lives, you know, yeah. just right there in your hands, like. I would not be surprised if, you know, she had PTSD and mm -hmm. was struggling with that, just seeing all the bloodshed and all the war. Because, you know, yeah. like we said earlier, she was there pretty much not on the front lines, but she was pretty close to everything. Yeah, men literally bleeding to death in her arms yeah. and getting shot while she tried to help yeah, them. Like, like, you can't imagine. And she kept working. She didn't give up. Like, that's the craziest part. Mm -hmm. And still she didn't even give up after all of this. So after she makes her full recovery, Clara focused on publicizing an international Red Cross and gaining support for the American Red Cross, which was established May 21st, 1881. She was elected its president a few weeks later. I'm sure she wrote some like letters back to the old school people and said, you know, this is what you're missing. Uh, I'm the president now. Here we go. So, <laughs> but the newly formed organization sprang into action in the fall of 1881 when forest fires ripped through Michigan. It provides relief during many other natural disasters and epidemics in the U.S. Clara directed many of the relief operations herself, of course. Of course she did. <laughs> yeah, like such a surprise. In 1898, Clara herself traveled with the nurses to Cuba during the Spanish and American War to nurse the wounded and provide supplies and food. She was 76 at the time. In 1886, Clara moved to Glen Echo, Maryland. Then in 1900, after several contentious attempts in the 1890s, the U.S. Congress granted the American Red Cross a charter, making the independent nonprofit organization responsible for fulfilling the provisions of the Geneva Conventions, providing family and other support to the U.S. military and providing assistance for disaster relief. Just amazing. Like, 
the Red Cross. Like we all know, the Red Cross is known over this entire world. Yeah, and it started see it with everywhere. this woman in the Civil War. Isn't that crazy? It just shows you what one person with good intentions can, you know, start up and do. Yeah. Uh, Clara also directed her last relief operation in, in 1900 for victims of a hurricane that devastated Galveston, Texas, four years later. So she's like 80. <laughs> Bowing to the pressure for new, larger, centralized leadership of the American Red Cross, she resigned her position. In 1905, she established the National First Aid Association of America, which emphasized basic first aid instruction and emergency preparedness and served as an honorary president for five years. <laughs> oh my goodness. She continued living at her home in Glen Echo, dying at the age of 90 in 1912. Clara, wow. You know, I think she stuck around forever. She would just always help, <laughs> you know, like no matter what her age was. I mean, she was president while she was like in her <laughs> 80s and stuff. Yeah. Like imagine running an organization being that old. Right. It's impressive. So many women volunteered as union nurses that the U.S. government hired Dorothea Dix to serve as the superintendent of women nurses. African-American nurses were not included in those numbers, nor were they recognized for their service for decades to come. Some were paid and yet many just volunteered. During the Civil War, Black women did serve as nurses in convalescent homes and U.S. government hospitals. There was a woman named Anne Bradford Stokes. She is the best known of the African-American women who served as nurses on the hospital ship USS Red Rover, which was the first Union Naval Hospital ship. She was enlisted in the Navy in January 1863 and served until October 1864 during which time she was paid regular wages. Stokes became the first African-American woman to serve on board a U.S. military vessel, and she was among the first women to serve as a nurse in the Navy. Wow. The USS Red Rover, a converted former Confederate paddlewheel steamer, was the first U.S. Navy hospital ship, and nearly 3,000 patients were treated on board during the Civil War. Anne worked under the direction of the Sisters of the Holy Cross nuns aboard the USS Red Rover. And after leaving the Navy, Anne married Gilbert Stokes. In 1890, Anne Bradford Stokes applied for a disability pension for her service during the Civil War and was certified by the Navy as having served on active duty for 18 months. She was awarded a pension that same year and is the first woman in the United States to receive a pension for her own military service. I thought that that was really cool. Yeah. Not just the first African-American woman, but the first woman. And then, of course, we've heard so many stories about Harriet Tubman, of course. Oh, yeah. And best known for escaping slavery with the help of the conductors on the Underground Railroad and then helping 19 more times and escorting, you know, more than 300 slaves to freedom. But did you know that during the Civil War, Tubman served in numerous military hospitals? In 1865, she was appointed matron of the Colored Hospital at Fort Monroe in Virginia in 1865 and began caring for sick and wounded black soldiers there. Wow. Tubman worked tirelessly trying to heal the sick. Many in the hospital were dying from dysentery, a disease associated with fever, severe abdominal pain, 
and terrible diarrhea. Harriet Tubman remembered home remedies from her childhood, and she was sure that she could help these men if she could just find some of those same roots and herbs that grew where she grew up in Maryland. One night, she searched the woods until she found water lilies and cranesbill, which is geranium, and she boiled the water lily roots and the herbs and made a bitter tasting brew that she gave to a man who was dying and he slowly recovered. Wow. She also lived past 90 and she continued to serve mankind in numerous capacities throughout her long life. Between the time of the Civil War and the Spanish-American War, it was mainly men who filled the role of military nurses but as this war approached, the military began to realize that the scant number of male nurses who served in peacetime wouldn't be enough yeah. during a war. And so in 1898, the Surgeon General authorized the appointment of nurses who would serve under contract to the military, and they didn't specify a required gender, so women applied. Most of them were untrained, though, as the Surgeon General's office did not have the necessary resources to examine their qualifications, the Daughters of the American Revolution offered to serve as the examining board for nurses who wished to work for the government. And the standard for being appointed as a nurse for the government was set at having graduated from a training school and having recommendations from suitable sources. So in a sense, this was the early form of the modern nursing degree. Right. So then we get to World War I. And the American Red Cross, which, again, like we talk about all the time, but we, can, <laughs> we know where this comes from now, our, yeah. our amazing Clara. It signed up in excess of 22,000 nurses during World War I, and almost half of them worked on the Western Front. Some of them also worked with the British and French armies serving in American units. Unfortunately, African-American nurses and immigrant nurses were not allowed to serve overseas at the time. And also, military leaders, they didn't really want the nurses to be at the battlefront. And battles, now you have bigger weapons, you know. Right. There's probably more people. I mean, this is a bigger war. It was even more dangerous yeah. as before. And so they really wanted to keep the nurses safe and keep them back from the front lines. But eventually they realized that, again, they could save more lives if the nurses were readily available to treat the wounds right there at the front. Yeah. After the war, there was a movement to assign ranks to the nurses. And this happens because their authority was not often recognized. You know, they weren't commissioned. They didn't have a rank. And yeah. so it was really easy for men to be like, who are you? Some woman trying <laughs> yeah. to, you know, go away. <laughs> So the service of all the nurses in World War I expanded the role of women in the U.S. military. In 1920, the Army authorized officer's rank for nurses, and doctrine later changed to assign female nurses to field hospitals. Gradually, more duty positions throughout the military opened to women, culminating in 2016 when the Secretary of Defense announced that no military occupations were subject to gender restrictions. One of the ladies that I came across at Rosecrans National Cemetery, her name was Desi Dell Bellinger Canfield, and she was born on the 14th of June in 1893. She died on 25th of June, 1954, at the age of 61. Mm. And that is all I could find on her. Oh. 
I know she had a story in there somewhere, you know. She did. I mean, she lived through the war and then even into World War II, which she probably didn't do nursing through because she was a little older, but yeah, I don't know. So anyway, if anyone knows her story, I would love to hear it. (laughs) A sad story about a woman named Henrietta Mellet. She was a Canadian Army Medical Corps, 15th Canadian General Hospital, and she was from Galway and known to her family as Marion. Her death notice said she was murdered by the Huns. Wow. Henrietta Hetty Mellet arrived in Canada in August 1908, where she was recorded as a 27-year-old teacher. She enlisted on 22nd January 1918 at London, Ontario. In 1911, Henrietta Mellet was working as a nurse at Victoria Hospital, London. She joined the Red Cross at the outbreak of the war and served in France, Egypt, and England. Wow. She transferred to the Canadian Army Medical Corps in early 1918, and at the time of her death, she was with the 15th Canadian General Hospital, which was based at Nancy Astor's Cliveden House in Buckinghamshire. Kind of crazy. It was at the home of Lord and Lady Astor. Remember from the Titanic episode? So they were very famous, wealthy people. So really interesting there. And strangely enough, like Mr. Astor, Henrietta would also die of drowning. She was drowned in the sinking of the RMS Leinster off Dublin on the 10th of October, 1918, following a torpedo attack by a German submarine 16 miles east of Dublin, Mm. while en route from Kingstown, now Dunlahiri, to Holyhead, Wales. Cemetery records note her burial on 16 October, 1918, said to be aged 38. So she went down with their ship after being torpedoed. That's crazy. It really is. It's really tragic. So next for World War I, we have Julia Stimson. She was head of nursing service of the American Expeditionary Forces. At the age of 16, Julia Stimson was admitted to Vassar, which was subsequently attended by her four sisters. And at graduation, she wished to become a physician, but her parents discouraged her from entering the male-dominated world of medicine. Oh, that's just so sad. You know, your family is you know, supposed to be there to support you and to be there for you. And <laughs> maybe that's what they thought they were doing. And they thought they were protecting her. But Yeah, it's kind of sad that they were like, oh, yeah, you don't want to be a physician. Well, soon thereafter, she was hospitalized for a skin condition, and while she was there, she met Annie Warburton Goodrich, who was the head of the New York Hospital Training School, which was a nursing school. So when she recovered, she enrolls in the training school, and she graduates in 1908, and she then becomes supervisor of nurses at Harlem Hospital between 08 and 1911. She wrote a book called The Nurse's Handbook of Drugs and Solution, which was published in 1910. 1911, she became the head of social service at Washington University Medical School in St. Louis, and she later became superintendent of the training school for nurses at Barnes Hospital and the St. Louis Children's Hospital. 
where she also headed the administration of social service. Then she pursues her master's degree in sociology. Wow. I mean, she was just really ahead of her time. <laughs> yeah, she went all out. So with the United States entrance into World War I in April 1917, Stimson volunteered and became chief nurse at base hospital number 21 at Barnes Hospital in St. Louis. While there, she gathered a group of nurses with which to travel to France to serve as chief nurse as base hospital number 21 of the Washington University unit in Lyon, France. Uh, in the final days before departure from St. Louis, Stimson wrote to her parents, quote, Aside from what we think about the causes and principles involved and the tremendous satisfaction of having a chance to help work them out, to be in the front ranks in the most dramatic event that has ever been staged, and to be in the first group of women ever called out for duty with the United States Army, and in the first part of the army ever sent off on the expeditionary affair of this sort. This, wait, is all too much good fortune for any one person like me. She was up for a challenge on an adventure, wasn't yeah, she? That's a great perspective to have, you know. Mm -hmm. In April 1918, Stimson was reassigned to the American Red Cross in Paris and was named chief nurse of the American Red Cross nurses in France. She was then put in charge of 10,000 nurses in the country. Wow. 10,000. In November 1918, she was named Director of Nursing Service of the American Expeditionary Forces. She's amazing. Her father kept all of her letters home during the war and published them in 1918 as finding themselves the letters of the American Army Chief Nurse in a British hospital in France. Yeah, for a guy who didn't want his daughter to be a physician, he was proud of everything she did. Yeah, <laughs> now I'll make a book and make money off of it. And... <laughs> Good job, daughter. <laughs> the title of the book was inspired by base hospital number 21 physician, Dr. Borden Veder's December 1917 letter to his wife, in which he wrote, Julia is, as usual, running her department in a splendid way. The nurses have a fine spirit and are very happy as a whole, under conditions which are definitely masculine and not adapted to women. The spirit of the unit is really wonderful. It is most interesting watching people finding themselves. For her wartime service, Julia Stimson received the United States Distinguished Service Medal, the British Royal Red Cross, also a really fancy long name for a French medal, <laughs> and the International Red Cross Florence Nightingale Medal. General John J. Pershing, commander of the American Expeditionary Forces, cited her for exceptionally meritorious and conspicuous service. That's a mouthful. <laughs> she was also awarded an honorary doctorate of science from Mount Holyoke in 1921. Wow. So she returns to the United States at the end of the war and Stimson was appointed acting superintendent of the Army Nurse Corps and dean of the Army School of Nursing. And so she continues to help and teach a whole nother generation of nurses that will be able to help. And there was an amended Defense Act in 1920, which then awarded her the relative rank of major, making her the first and only woman of rank at that time. That is awesome. I know. 
She also traveled to France in 1919 as a United States delegate to the International Red Cross Conference there. Plot twist. She served as the superintendent of the Army Corps for lots of years, and she retires in 1937, but then she is president of the American Nurses Association. <laughs> Just couldn't really retire, sounds like Clara Barton, right? Yeah. And she does this until 1944. You know what's coming up next, World War II. And she was recalled to active duty to recruit women for the Army Nurse Corps. Wow. And so in August 1948, only six weeks before her death, Stimson was awarded the rank of Colonel. Wow. She was described as, quote, while not stout, Miss Stimson was a large woman, tall and well-proportioned. She was direct in manner, forceful in speech, in uniform, appropriately enough hers was a commanding presence but she was an approachable person unquote. so finally she decides that she's going to retire and she planned to return to new york and care for her widowed mother and just kind of wants to relax you know have some leisure <laughs> but even though she retired from the army she still served american nursing with the associations and she then dies in September 1948 at St. Francis Hospital in New York and we don't know what surgery but it said that she had circulatory failure following abdominal surgery. Wow. And she died at the age of 67 and following her death her family, the Stimson family, spread her ashes by a stream on her property in Briarcliff Manor, New York. And something kind of neat, in 1976, the American Nursing Association inducted Colonel Julia Stimson into its Bicentennial Hall of Fame. Which brings us, of course, to World War II. So World War II now is saw the service of 59 thousand or more american nurses wow only 1000 nurses were listed on the rolls of the army nurse corps at the time of the attack on pearl harbor but following the attack those rolls grew to 12000 <sighs> nurses were called to serve even closer to the battlefields than they had ever been before even serving under fire thanks to the skill and dedication of the nurses the us military had an astonishingly low rate of death following injury. Less than 4% of soldiers who were treated in the field following an injury later died as a result of wounds or disease. Wow. So they saw that, let's see, Clara knew what she was talking about. Yeah. They're back in the 1800s. 1800s, but nobody listens to us. <laughs> <laughs> There's a good book about some American women it's called We Band of Angels by Elizabeth Norman. And after the bombing of Pearl Harbor, 99 Army and Navy nurses carried on caring for 6,000 injured soldiers over four months in makeshift jungle hospitals on the Bataan Peninsula in the Philippines. And nearly two dozen women later returned to the States, but the 77 women who remained were captured as POWs in 1942 by the Japanese and became the largest group of women POWs in U.S. history. And so that's what this wee band of angels 
book is about. So if you want a book about bad A women in <laughs> World War II, it's by Elizabeth M. Norman. So as you can imagine, World War II, when it came around, <laughs> women experienced the war and contributed to American victories in countless ways. Mm -hmm. American women entered the workforce in large numbers. They volunteered in the United States and abroad with the American Red Cross, the USO, and hundreds of other organizations. Nurses also served under fire in field hospitals and evacuation hospitals, on hospital trains and hospital ships, and as flight nurses on medical transport planes. Army nurses were assigned to hospital ships and trains, flying ambulances and field, evacuation station, and general hospitals at home and overseas. They were busy girls. They were everywhere. On November 8th, during the invasion of North Africa, a medical corps captain starting down the cargo net into the landing barge, looked to one side and saw an army nurse descending the net alongside him. At that moment in his mind, a paradigm shift occurred. <laughs> Quote, at that moment, she and the other nurses had ceased to be the women. We were all comrades in equally dangerous footing, trying to survive the insanity of combat. Unquote. Wow. Two evacuation hospitals with their complement of nurses landed in Normandy in June 1944, four days after the invasion. As we know, World War II was a global conflict that required a massive amount of manpower. Nearly every able-bodied man served in the army or the navy. And many of us had grandparents, great-grandparents that fought in the war, depending on your age. And mm -hmm. with so many of the nation's men fighting for the country, unprecedented economic opportunities were created for women. From factory workers to being a war nurse, World War II marked the beginning of women's entry into the workforce. Many, many nurses were recruited for the war. Almost all of them were women. From 1943 to 1948, the U.S. government even provided free education for nursing students. In June 1944, Army nurses were granted officers' commissions dependence allowances, and equal pay. Well, hallelujah. <laughs> Finally! World War II nurses had to be between the ages of 20 and 40 with no children under 14. Before 1943, they didn't need formal training, but by July of that year, commissioned army nurses needed specific training. World War II nurses were trained in things like field sanitation, mental health, and the administration of anesthetics. For women at the time, it was an important opportunity to help the war effort and make a difference. But like we said, in previous conflicts, they weren't quite as close to the front, but now World War II brought them closer and closer, and it was necessary so they could care for patients in time, and they worked under very harsh conditions. Yeah. They had to make life-or-death emergency decisions on the spot for severely wounded soldiers in field hospitals. Women had never been this close to battle in all of American history. There were nurses serving in all arenas of the war, putting them at serious risk of injury or death. One army nurse, Esther Edwards, recounts her experience around the time of the Battle of the Bulge. The Allies fired artillery shells over the building. Then the German artillery landed close to us, but luckily we were never hit. One nurse was using her helmet to bathe when the firing came too close, so she dumped out the water, put the helmet on her head, and sat there naked until the firing stopped. 
<laughs> it's kind of rude. That's kind of rude. Taking a bath in my helmet. And the injuries that these nurses treated were often grisly as well. According to another army nurse, Grace G. Patterson, she said, our medical work was interesting. We had orders to exteriorate the gut when a patient had any gut surgery. With so many patients having abdominal surgery, some of the intestinal holes might be missed. So when patients finally reached the hospitals in England, their intestines were put back in. Jeez. Uh, what? <laughs> well, I'm glad they're back in. Like the men who fought on the front lines, the women who served as nurses during World War II saw and experienced some very disturbing things. Like soldiers, many nurses developed PTSD in the wake of their service overseas. In one incident, 79 American Army nurses were held as prisoners of war in the Philippines. Which is about that book that okay. I was talking about before. Yeah, by the Japanese. While it wasn't well recorded, many World War II nurses also experienced PTSD after returning to America after the war. Like the soldiers, they often felt alienated and isolated, haunted by what they had seen during the war. Yeah, you can only imagine. And because most of them were women, the nurses of World War II received minimal recognition for their service during those post-war years. Jeez. Many were denied veterans' benefits, despite physical and psychological health problems. And in 1983, President Ronald Reagan specifically honored World War II nurses at National POW MIA Recognition Day. This was decades later, however, when many of the women had already passed away. The brave women who served as military nurses in World War II will always be remembered for their courage and fortitude. Yeah. And at a time when few women even worked outside the home, they stepped up onto the front lines to further the war efforts. And again, although African-American nurses were fully qualified and prepared to serve as nurses on the onset of World War II, racial segregation and discrimination made it difficult for Black women to join the ranks of the Army Nurse Corps. And the ANC began expanding its recruiting process. Thousands of Black nurses who wanted to serve their country filled out applications. All received a letter telling them that their application would not be considered because the Army did not have regulations in place for the appointment of Black nurses. Mabel Stoppers, the Executive Secretary of the National Association of Colored Graduate Nurses, began lobbying for a change in the discriminatory policies of the ANC. While the Army did eventually comply in 1941, it did so unwillingly and placed a quota on the number of Black nurses that they would accept. Capping the number allowed to join at 56. Oh, that's just very helpful. As the war progressed, the number of black nurses allowed to enlist remained low, although the quota was officially lifted in July of 1944. In April of 1944, 48 African-American nurses were assigned to camps. They were allowed only to care for black servicemen, these 48 nurses were assigned to segregated hospital wards on army bases located at Camp Livingston, Louisiana and Fort Bragg, North Carolina. Della Rainey Jackson, a graduate of Lincoln Hospital School of Nursing in Durham, North Carolina, was assigned to lead the nurses at Fort Bragg and became the first black nurse to be commissioned in the U.S. Army. Though black nurses were largely restricted to the segregated hospitals and aid stations, they also provided medical care for German prisoners of war at places such as Camp Florence, 
Arizona and the United States, as well as in England, many African-American nurses considered caring for German POWs to be kind of not your favorite assignment as they found interacting with the nation's enemy to be, you know, that would be troubling. That would be hard. It's a little awkward. And it had taken decades for black nurses to be admitted into the Army Nurse Corps. And it felt like a betrayal to be assigned to care for the enemy soldiers instead of your own wounded American soldiers, right. which I can understand. That you actually wanted to come serve and help. <laughs> not to. Right. And as most of the prisoners were in good health when they got there, they really weren't being used. They weren't being utilized for their full potential. Right. And it was lonely and isolating out in the Southwest, and they were forced still to eat in segregated dining halls. Man, you've got to respect them that they wanted to do this so badly that they lived through the... Yeah, they put up with all the mistreatment and everything. Mm -hmm. It definitely shows their patriotism and just how much they loved this country. Exactly. In the last years of World War II, with the casualty rate of American servicemen rising rapidly, the demand for nurses also rose. President Roosevelt, in a State of the Union address in 1945, announced plans to establish a nursing draft. Ignoring the 9,000 applications that the Army Nurse Corps had received from African-American nurses, President Roosevelt declared that the draft would be instituted unless 18,000 additional nurses volunteered for service. An outcry arose among the National Association of Colored Graduate Nurses and Civil Rights Organizations. Congressman Adam Clayton Powell Jr., the first African-American to be elected to Congress from New York, also denounced the decision by saying, It is absolutely unbelievable that in times like these, when the world is going forward, that there are leaders in our American life who are going backward. It is further unbelievable that these leaders have become so blindly and unreasonably un-American that they have forced our wounded men to face the tragedy of death rather than allow trained nurses to aid because these nurses' skin happens to be of a different color. Really, it's just so dumb. Like, there's all uh, these 9,000, the you said, like, people wanted to help. Yeah. Like, that... We had so many nurses we that could... were trained and ready to go. The legislation ultimately died in the Senate and was never passed. By the end of the war, approximately 500 African-American nurses held commissions compared to 59,000 white nurses. So that accounts to about 8% of the Army Nurse Corps. Despite the racial segregation and discrimination that they experienced, they fought for their place within the ANC and they earned their right to serve their country. And on July 26, 1948, President Truman signed Executive Order 9981, establishing the President's Committee on Equality of Treatment and Opportunity in the Armed Services, requiring the government to integrate the then-segregated military. It also stated that there shall be equality of treatment and opportunity for all persons in the armed forces without regard to race, color, religion, or national origin. For many, including the African-American nurses that had struggled to serve their country during World War I and II, the legislation was long overdue. By 2019, just over 70 years after President Truman signed the order to desegregate the military, African-American nurses make up approximately 17% of the Army Nurse Corps. 
In December of 2015, Lieutenant General Nadja West was the first African-American man or woman appointed as the U.S. Army Surgeon General, making her the first female Lieutenant General and the highest-ranking female graduate of the U.S. Military Academy. So we're going places. So we're going to kind of, I know lots happened in the Korean War and in the Vietnam War with nurses, but I wanted to tell one last story about a modern day nurse that I found in Rosecrans Cemetery. Her name was Army Captain Jennifer Marino. She was a soldier, a nurse, and a resident of San Diego. She was laid to rest at Fort Rosecrans National Cemetery. She is the first woman combat casualty to be buried here since the post-September 11th wars began. In a piece by the San Diego Union Tribune, they tell how she lost her life and why she was a hero in the old-fashioned sense of the word. On an October 6 night mission with Army Rangers in Afghanistan, Jennifer Marino ran into the danger zone to help those wounded in the initial attack. The citation accompanying her Bronze Star Medal with V for Valor offers the details. For exceptionally valorous achievement as a cultural support team leader for a joint task force in support of Operation Enduring Freedom. During this period, CPT Moreno assaulted a remote compound occupied by enemy insurgents. During the assault, the enemy triggered multiple suicide explosive devices and improvised explosive devices, wounding several rangers. Fully knowing the extreme and imminent danger to herself, CPT Moreno moved throughout an improvised explosive device belt to render medical aid to casualties and assist with evacuation. Through her distinctive accomplishments, CPT Moreno reflected great credit upon herself, this command, and the United States Army. Moreno is an example of female troops who served on the front lines in Iraq and Afghanistan. While the American military debates how to integrate women into fighting units, females have worked alongside infantrymen as bomb specialists and intelligent officers and on cultural support or female engagement teams. At least 159 female U.S. troops have been killed in the Iraq and Afghanistan conflicts. Marino's family said that the tiny woman, just five feet tall and 25 years old, always wanted to help people. Marino planned to make the Army her life's work. Her family said as she jumped at the chance to apply for the role on cultural support team that put her in the field with special operation units, she interacted with Afghan women when custom forbade contact with men. At her burial, six female soldiers, all members of the Army's cultural support team, carried Marino's flag-draped coffin. One person in that group was Master Sergeant Catherine Harris, her battle buddy. She said Marino took her job seriously, but managed to let her personality shine through. Very humble, quiet professional, she was good at whatever she did, and she gave 100%. Harris said after the ceremony, but she was also that person who could make every situation light and easy, she said. There were times when some people were a little bit frustrated and upset and we'd send Jenny in there to lighten the mood. Her smile was very contagious. Three other U.S. soldiers were killed on the October 6th mission. 
which was aimed at a high-placed Taliban target in southern Afghanistan. At least 14 army rangers were seriously injured. Army berets dominated the Fort Rosecrans service Tuesday, which followed a memorial mass at Marine Corps Recruit Depot, San Diego. An honor guard from the 75th Ranger Regiment, Fort Benning, fired a 21-gun salute. A bugler played a solemn tax. Then the six female pallbearers slowly and carefully folded Marino's flag. Finally, it was presented to her grieving mother with the thanks of a grateful nation. The fallen army nurse is buried on a green grassy slope overlooking the Pacific. Marino's headstone reads, Loving daughter, awesome sister, caring and giving. It also says, like many others, KIA, bronze star with V citation. So to Jennifer Marino, Henrietta Mellet, Clara Barton, and every other nurse that has fought by the side of the men in these wars and those that tried to and were shut out. <laughs> this week, we just wanted to honor these amazing women and bring you to this really special cemetery. It's definitely one I would recommend. It's like we said earlier, it's just beautiful and there's a definitely a nice feeling of peace and just like a still feeling mm -hmm. there. And like we said, it's just a good reminder of what all these people have done for our country and for the loved ones. And so we just say thanks to all those who serve. It's definitely a place of reverence and is one of those holy places. Thank you, Rhett, for helping me to tell their story today and yeah, for um, trekking with me through all the cemeteries. <laughs> yeah, the, the five <laughs> cemeteries I've gone on. But that was one of those I have the picture of you sitting under a tree, yeah. like just waiting for me to finish. But <laughs> <laughs> you guys are always super patient. I appreciate that. Yeah, I, I really love the stories. I think they're ones that you don't get to hear about a lot. And so it was fun just to hear kind of this side of history that, you know, is kind of not like shoved down or shoved away, but just not really talked about as much. You don't hear about the nurses as much. And that's why when I saw their graves, I thought, whoa. This is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I need to figure this out. So hopefully all of you found it as interesting as I did. And we just appreciate you listening and for tuning in and all your listens and support. It's really appreciated. We're going to keep bringing you more and more stories. Yep. So tune in, subscribe whatever you gotta do that's right this was stones bones and shadows you can see photos and more information about the cemeteries we explore and find our sources at stones bones and shadows also don't forget to check us out on facebook like us on instagram follow us on twitter and leave us a comment we love to hear from our listeners Thank you.